Good morning, Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and due to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. This week, we're donating this advertising space to the English paraphrasing of this very real campaign that the Japan Rose Growers Association has been running for the last five years. Hey, it's almost Father's Day. Have you bought your father a bouquet of roses yet? Don't forget to show your pop how much you appreciate him with a big old bouquet of roses. We're pretty sure that what dads all over Japan want more than anything else is a bunch of roses. How do we know this, you ask? Well, we know it because many of us here at the Japan Rose Growers Association are dads ourselves, and we would certainly love it if someone bought, ideally, as many roses as possible. So this Father's Day, spend your money on roses. It's not like you know for a fact that he doesn't want them. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Dr. Alexandra Hamilton, lecturer at Suda University, whose research focuses on gender studies, especially as it relates to the representation of women in the media. Her article on gendered nautical terminology is actually where Ollie and I first found out that the reason people refer to boats as female is so they can pay those boats lower salaries. Dr. Hamilton, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. On this week's show, Japanese lawmakers demonstrate an extremely concerning lack of understanding of the concept of sexual consent. That's right, we're doing a show on consent, so start your stopwatches now and we'll see how long Ollie can go without making a joke about electrical outlets. Also, he's got our weekly River Cruise recommendation. Ollie? More power to you, Bobby. <laughs> yes, this week's recommendation is one for England fans. A British expat in Yokohama has adorned his boat with England flags and England football paraphernalia. Experts suggest that despite all claims to the contrary, this boat may never come home. Plus, if your dad loves river cruises and you want something to get him for Father's Day... Besides the four separate bouquets of roses. Well, obviously. Uh, besides that, if you want something for Father's Day, consider taking a page out of my kid's playbook. Every year, they wake me up with a river cruise in bed, where they bring me a jar of hot sake, and they put on hats, and they sing the songs, and they stand on the bed, and they pretend to push it down the river with broom handles. That's so cute. Do they do that all by themselves? Uh, no, I, I ask them to do it very specifically. Uh, they don't they don't really enjoy it, but I think they know that if they want to keep having birthdays and Christmases, they need to play ball. All that coming up later, but first, Soap Talk. Brian, everything okay with you this week? Uh, it's pronounced Brian. Bobby, this week I tweeted that we might be taking the ID from all of our listeners from episode 90. And a fair proportion of people accepted that was a joke. Some people thought I was being serious. This was obviously in relation to this app, this nasty app. So we made a couple of tweets this week about this Zaidu card scanning app, your foreigner registration card here in Japan. Uh, they released an app that anyone can download and use to verify the authenticity of your foreigner card. And um, if, if you're in Japan and on Twitter, I think most people knew exactly what we were kind of poking at with our tweets. But a lot of people overseas hadn't heard about it yet. And honestly, this is still one of those things that my understanding of it comes largely from the angry tweets that I've seen on Twitter. <laughs> uh, Alex, w was this on your radar? This was yeah, all over Twitter, all over Facebook, all over everything, right? So much anger about 
the Japanese government giving the power to check people's immigration statuses to anybody with a smartphone. It was kind of amazing. Well, this is this is one of those things that's kind of uh, split the Gaikokujin community here in Japan in half because there are maybe not in half proportionally, but you're either very, very upset about it or there's a camp that's coming out and saying, well, I don't have anything to hide. Uh, and they're saying it earnestly. You may not have anything to hide, but <laughs> it does. It it leaves people open to exploitation, right? There's so many people out there who are here, possibly legally, possibly semi-legally, possibly can't go home, possibly are stuck in abusive situations at their workplace mm. or at home. It just leaves them open to so much exploitation. It's terrifying. I mean, even giving that power to police, right? I was thinking when I saw this that I was stopped by police a couple of years ago um, to have my card checked, as happens so often, right? And I was it had been the day that I had given a lecture on racial discrimination in Japan. And so mm. I said this to the police officer as he was checking my papers. I said, oh, I just gave a lecture on this, aha. And he said, oh, I don't know why you'd talk about that because we don't have any minorities in Japan, so we don't have any discrimination. And he, he was dead serious. They don't have any minorities? He actually said the words, we do not have any minority groups in Japan, so we don't have discrimination. Okay. To you? <laughs> yeah, to, to, to me. <laughs> I don't know what he thought I was doing. Um, yeah, maybe so maybe that... it was just like a really meta uh, a meta insult where he was like, you don't exist. You are not uh, he, here. I think he was about 19 years old. I think I was one of his first ever checks. And I think that he'd never really thought beyond anything. Because apparently but... they do that to new recruits. Like one of their inductions is yep. go out yep. and bother a load of foreigners. Oh, yeah. Every April. I've so I've never had it in the the four or so years that I was staying in Japan. I've never had my Zaidu card asked for by the police. Uh, even when I had a traffic offence, um, I wasn't asked for my Zaidu card. Uh, I, I went the wrong way down a one way street. Uh, by the way, the police officer said you went the one way down the one way street, right? He went, yeah. He went, yeah. I'm, I, my job is to wait here to wait for people to do that. The signs obscured by a tree, <laughs> and I did feel like I did feel like saying to him, "Could you perhaps sort the tree out?" Uh, but yeah, he never I never even got my my, my ID checked then because I had a, a Japanese driver's license. Huh. But I, I was once that guy. I stayed in a hotel in, in Tokyo. I didn't have my passport with me because I traveled on a domestic flight. Uh, and obviously there's no ID checks at all on domestic flights. Checked into a hotel. They asked for a copy of my passport. I said, I don't have it. They said, can we take your Zydeu card? And I said, you don't need it. Uh, I said, the law says you just require my address. And I did have that kind of back and forth with the the, the, the check-in person only because I thought, well, if I'm not going to kind of make a stand now. Uh, but looking back, I don't know why I bothered making a stand. It would have been easier for them to just take a copy. What was interesting is I then later got an email from the manager of the hotel saying, oh, we've looked into this. I'm really sorry. You weren't supposed to be asked. Uh, as long as we take your, your domestic address, that's fine. Because the law very clearly says, uh, you know, the Hotel Act uh, which is responsible for asking for for this basically says you must take a a, a copy of of the address mm. of all people that stay in your hotel but only non-resident travelers do you have to take a copy of their uh, of their passport so in theory the zydu card the the residency card should have nothing to do with it now my view is i know how uh, i know how many small japanese organizations and hotels and hostels work i have absolutely no faith that that uh, that scan won't just be in some folder that eventually gets lost so so like from a if you want to kind of protect your identity then it's probably a smart thing to do but i don't think there's any like a priori wrong in just going through with whatever bullshit they ask you to do just have a peaceful life like we can't all be debito yeah 
Uh, I think with the Olympics um, and the Olympic athletes coming into the country and, and the expectation that they're going to quarantine uh, on their own, there's a concern that in Tokyo or in you know Hokkaido, in areas where the Olympic athletes are, that the foreigners who live there, the non-Japanese people who live there, will be discriminated against. And if if they have this kind of way to prove that they are a resident and the uh, locals can kind of check and see, then maybe it'll be easier for them to avoid that discrimination. But I also think it's really dangerous to get you know business owners and restaurant owners uh, accustomed to the idea of being able to uh, demand proof of residency in exchange for their services. And also take screenshots of people's addresses and... Right, right, Alex. Um, I, I've had friends who had like, you know, the pizza delivery driver got their personal information and then asked them out on a date uh, by, you know, sending them an email or, or a text message to their phone. Do you think there's an, a potential for this to be exploited in the same way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you could ask most women and they would say they've had some kind of experience of a man approaching them in an inappropriate way or getting their details in an inappropriate way. And this just adds a whole new way to do that, really, doesn't it? Do you think there's any sense that the Japanese government or the app developers will, will listen to these concerns? No, probably not, no. Ah. <laughs> <a> very little <laughs> So my, my understanding was that this app was created only because there is a statutory obligation by employers to make sure that you're employing someone who has the right to work. And, and the app itself doesn't actually store the data. It just says yes or no. And if it says no, then the onus is on you to to do some work to make sure that it's not a false negative. But I like the idea of someone who doesn't have that degree of responsibility to check that they're employing someone who's allowed to work. And it's just doing it speculatively. They just said, one day, one day I might meet a foreigner. I might need to check their details. So I have this app on my phone just in case so I can do it quickly. I think if the personal information is a real concern, they should adopt the um, age verification method that they use when you buy alcohol, which is just to show you a little screen that says, are you a valid foreign resident? Yes or no? And you just push yes. <laughs> Combini style approach to pretty much everything. Yeah. Bobby, episode 88. Yes. That's a prosperous number in Japan. Is yes. this a milestone episode? Episode wise, this is our Beiju EY. 88 is a prosperous number in Japan. Um, we're coming up on 100 faster than we expected. Um, we're planning some big stuff for that 100th episode, but that's still a ways away. So in the meantime, if you'd like to help us celebrate our Beiju EY, our 88th episode, consider buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Japan by River Cruise, or maybe a bouquet of roses. I'd love that. Um, also, we didn't get any mail this week, although our mailbox is always open at japanbyrivercruise.com and click the fax button. Uh, although we did get a tweet uh, asking for me to, to pick up on some loose threads about Malaysia. Number one, where's the cat? Number two, did I ever speak in Japanese uh, to my Japanese flatmate who didn't know I spoke the language? Uh, boy, oh boy, uh, there is, there's, so, there's so much to unpack. Uh, you will not believe how the story ended. We're going to have to do it on our secret podcast. Though Some of you listen to our secret, secret podcast. We haven't done it for a while, but we will link to it in our email. So if you're on the mailing list, we'll send a link to the next episode there. Uh, that does sound like a pretty uh, coy and pathetic way to get you to sign up to our mailing list. <laughs> let's see if it works. And with that, uh, let's jump into the news. Bobby Judo, what's in the news this week? Recently, a Japanese House of Representatives member, Honda Hiranao, publicly apologized after his comments during a review of Japan's age of consent laws came to light. 
In a CDP party meeting, he said that if he, as a 50-year-old, were to be arrested for having consensual sex with a 14-year-old, that would be, quote, absurd. And apparently other party members expressed agreement. Uh, Dr. Hamilton, if we can start with a blunt question, what the hell? That's a great question. What the hell? Um, I would have used stronger <laughs> language myself, but I think this is... Just another great example of a politician putting their foot in their mouth in regards to gender issues, right? I mean, it's mm. it's nice and it's it's nice that it's a bit of a change. It's CDP as, a, as opposed to LDP because normally it's the LDP mm. who goes off with these sorts of mm. things. Um, but it really is indicative of wider social ideas about what is acceptable yeah. for men to do. Is is this putting a foot in your mouth or is this saying the quiet part loud? Is this, you know, indicative of the way people actually think? Well, there was some great discussion going on on Twitter and author Kawakami Miyako, who's written, you know, this famous, fantastic feminist book, mm -hmm. Breasts and Eggs, um, she was saying that what struck her most was the fact that, yeah, there was this agreement. He said it because he thought he would get agreement. He said it because he thought right. that it would be something that would pass in society. Politicians don't generally say things that their constituents are going to disagree with. So... Yeah, I tend to agree with her there. It is demonstrating that there is still widespread acceptance for mm. men's dominance, men's exploitation of women, if they think that it's going to be pleasurable and fun for them. My reading of this comment is that there's an inbuilt oxymoron, right? When he talks about, quote unquote, consensual sex with a 14 year old, because the nature of sexual offences is that they become sexual offences when there is an absence of consent, right? That's what defines a sexual offence, right? Because, you know, you know what the law calls a sexual offence with consent? A damn good kinky time, that's right. But but when you don't have consent, that's when that, that's when you, you're breaking the law. And the reason why we have certain laws like if you're so drunk, you can't consent, or if you don't have the mental capacity, you can't consent. These are irreversible legal presumptions. That is to say, no matter what you think you're saying, we want to have some kind of threshold in the law which says we just don't think that someone of that age or someone of that mental capacity or someone of that level of inebriation is capable of consent. So it's not a question of they are consenting. The law is, is saying they cannot consent. Even if they claim they can, we're saying on balance, people in that category cannot, therefore should not. So I do think obviously this misses the point for a number of different angles, including obviously the feminist and the power dynamic and all the, also what 14 year old wants to have sex with a 50 year old, we'll put that to one side. Uh, I do think it, it just misunderstands why the laws are in place in the first place. But the laws themselves are quite unclear, right? So we have this idea that the age of consent is 13. Well, yeah, generally, nationally, I, that's what it's thought to be. I wanted to ask about this. In, in the West, this is a huge talking point among foreigners when they want to kind of criticize Japan for being way behind the times or whatever. You often hear people say that the age of consent in Japan is 13. Is that... Is that true? Is that fair? Yes and no. So there are certain jurisdictions where they have um, laws or... Um, other types of rules that state that you cannot have sex with somebody who's still in junior high school or it is um, a crime to have sex with somebody under a certain age. So according, in different areas and different jurisdictions, the law is a little bit different. But nationally, yes, it is 13. But yeah, we have to come back to that idea of can you consent at the age of 13? Mm. Possibly if you know, you're with a partner who's also 13 or 14. Possibly. Again, it's a big possibly. Um, but if somebody's in a position of power over you, if they're a doctor or a teacher or a politician or somebody mm. who can won't directly threaten you but who makes you feel like if you don't say yes there will be consequences to that behavior 
that's where right. we really need to have the discussion, right? It doesn't matter if the number gets changed to 16, like this working party was discussing. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that understanding of who is in power and who has control in the situation, then you're not going to be able to have the conversation about consent. Yeah, that, that was something that I had considered that, you know, if, if it's a 14 year old who's having sex with another 14 year old, you don't say throw that 14 year old in jail, um, depending on the circumstances. But the fact that that his example, I can't believe he went so hard. I can't believe he thought that this was so, yes. so acceptable that not only did he say a 50 year old, yeah. he said, if I as a 50 year old. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know, because he could have, he could have gone 40 and 18 and maybe, maybe got some broad uh, church of consensus. And then he could have started pushing his luck. But you're right. He went really hard. He went, if I went with just one year over the minimum age that even most people don't find acceptable. Wouldn't you love to have that level of confidence, though? Wouldn't you love to just have the confidence of a mediocre middle-aged man who thinks that he's entitled to any 14 year old and that they're going to be interested they do say that women like a confident man maybe that's oh. what he's going for <laughs> oh god I would, I would love to have that that level of confidence right up until the point that it got me in trouble and then i'd like to have enough self-awareness to stop <laughs> right up to the point that you stop breaking breaking the law so but these so, are the people who are making the laws. These are the people who are creating the conversation. It? So, Alex, what what were they reviewing and why? Um, so they've they've been reviewing the age of consent. So whether or not Japan should lift the age of consent. And this is a CDP um, team meeting. It's a working team meeting, and with the idea that each individual political party will come to the table with some kind of idea that they would like to put forward or they would like to sort of share, and then the national government will review the age of consent mm. in the laws. Um, of course, this is current. This has been tabled as a result of this and they haven't really come back to it. The discussion has really intensified since 2017 when the law was actually revised to include male victims of rape for the first time mm. because up until then it wasn't considered that men could be the victim of rape. And also um, within that 2017 revision, they did put in a proviso for people in a position of care or power. And that came from the idea of sort of parents raping children and what to do in those situations. Um, but they didn't drop, there was a requirement that um, you have to prove that the perpetrator has used force or threat and they mm. haven't actually dropped that. So as so often happens with people experiencing rape, they often shut down or they often find themselves unable to move or unable to speak or unable to say no. And in that case, mm. it doesn't count necessarily as rape, although it's incredibly difficult to prove that that was rape because there wasn't a perceived force or threat against them. Yeah, I think I remember a really, really horrible case where they said it was it was kind of the burden of proof was on the victim to prove that they had tried to resist and it didn't work. So that was in the Nagoya so the, court, right? Um, the father mm -hmm. who raped his daughter. And that, yeah. that was actually overturned and he has been sent to prison for 10 years after such a huge outcry. But it took massive public outcry to have that changed. So this is a question of physical force or threat, not some kind of social coercion or, or, or some other pressure. Because there's a lot of discourse in the UK about how the law of rape should extend to consent to the nature and the purpose of the act. You know, so you see cases, for example, of, of a man removing a condom mid-sex. I mean, you're consenting to the act, but you're not consenting to the act without a condom. Mm. That will now not usually meet the threshold of rape. Sometimes even if you're coercing... Yeah, I think it's called stealthing in Australia. I assume it's called stealthing in the UK as well. Stealthing, I've heard that. That makes it sound too cool. I don't think I like it. <laughs> We need to come Stealthing up with a less sounds like a skateboard move, doesn't <laughs> a it? less cool like sounding name for breaking yeah, somebody without a condom. Be, yeah. It should be called deceit. 
Uh, no, actually rape. That's what it should be called. But my instinct whenever I read these discussions, particularly about Japan, is unfortunately somewhat pessimistically, does this matter? Because how many of these cases do actually get to court and how many successful prosecutions are there anyway? So in your view, are these discussions meaningful if it changes to 15 or 16 or if there's a change to the law? Will that mean that victims have better protection or, or is this just politicians playing? This is an ongoing debate within Japanese feminism as well, right? This whether or not you push for legislative change or cultural change. And mm. I think you have to have both going at the same time. Like if you have stories of women who've gone to report rapes to the police and have been traumatized over and over again by the police telling them they have to reenact their rape with mm. a police officer lying on top of them out in the street where they were raped or wherever it was. Are you serious? If you don't, it doesn't matter how great the law is, if you still have police who don't understand how to how to approach rape victims or survivors, how to look after them, um, how to prosecute well if you don't have counselling, if you don't have cultural change that doesn't blame the victims for things that happen to them, then it's not mm. going to make much of a difference if the law changes. Those two things have to go together at the same time. So there's the question of uh, needing cultural change around what it means to give consent. And I'm wondering, what do you think is the way that people are socialised in Japan around this issue of consent? So that's a really big question. And I think that you have to look at it from different perspectives. So first is the idea that sex education is desperately lacking. And mm. sex education can't actually be improved as much as perhaps individual schools or education boards would like to, because they do live with the threat of um, government sanction. So this has happened in the past, you had a special school that was making very um, specific materials, very kind of clear materials for intellectually disabled students, so they could understand sex and sexuality, they discovered that some of their students were involved in sexual relationships, and they wanted to protect them. And in the beginning, these teachers were lauded for their amazing work, and they were asked to come and demonstrate their lessons and then conservative politicians got involved and there was a huge media backlash outcry the teachers were moved on there were sanctions and it ended up in a 10-year court case where the teachers were found to have not done anything wrong but they had just spent the last 10 years of their lives in front of the courts with everything being upended mm. so yeah. there's always that fear that at some point if you do even though you have a lot of autonomy within an education board or within a specific school, if you do try and create a sex education curriculum that is more detailed than what you get right now, and what you get right now is sperm meets egg, how do they meet? Well, nobody really knows. Maybe you should go home and ask your parents. Uh -huh. um, if you try and do something beyond that, there is that fear that your career could be ended or you could end up in the media. So mm. sex education is one element. There's also if students are not getting appropriate sex education at school, they often turn to pornography. Pornography, I'm not going to get into a debate right or wrong. You know, there's good and bad elements to the porn industry. Um, but pornography, as we know, is like the Hollywood of sex, just like a Hollywood movie is not real life. Pornography right. is not real sex. And so what students learn from that, again, is sort of very dominant men, men taking over, men abusing women, exploiting women, and women being very, very passive when they're having sex is what you get from mainstream pornography in general. Um, and then you get the idea that parents at home also don't know how to educate their kids. And so there's some really great um, books and things written by midwives and um, OBGYNs who are really trying to improve sex education in Japan. But if it comes down to individual families, then children are not going to get a kind of comprehensive education that covers relationships, respect, pleasure and consent as well. 
So since it's your wheelhouse, let's go back to this um, this area of you know representation in media in terms of how sex is rep represented in the media, especially in pornography. And this is, um, forgive me, Ali, but if you were a male comic in Japan, this is a bit that's been done to death. But the idea that the difference between Japanese porn and Western porn is that the woman in the sex act in porn is always saying stop, is always saying no, as opposed to the very enthusiastic participation in, in some uh, Western pornography. So in terms of the way that's represented in the media, uh, do you see that there's kind of a focus on the woman as a willing participant, as an active participant? You know, how, how do you think it could be done better to, to improve the idea of, of sex? Or to ask that question more specifically, do you think that Honda Hirano, when he's imagining having sex with a 14-year-old, is he imagining her enjoying it? Oh, God. I'm going to have nightmares for the next week. Awful, <laughs> awful. It's, man, it's, it's so bad, isn't it? All you can do is laugh. It's absurd. It's so absurd. I mean, if you don't laugh, you are going to go and throw up, right? It's one of the two. Oh, right. man. Right. We need to have these really positive representations of women having a good time. I mean, I was talking to some students a while back and we were talking about sex ed. And I said, and in sex ed, has anybody ever said to you, you know what? First up, we're going to talk about safety. But second, we're going to say, you know, sex should be really fun. You should be enjoying yourself nobody ever says that in sex education it's implied yeah. a little bit for boys like you know you'll have wet dreams or you'll masturbate or whatever so there's the idea that men do have an active sexuality there and it's implied but nobody ever mentions that for women and so if they're looking at porn with these really passive women who are kind of groaning and saying no and stop and not in a position to say that they're enjoying themselves then that reinforces that um, there are increasingly better representations of women enjoying themselves, women have enjoying sexual pleasure, particularly in female-friendly pornography and things like that. But they're still quite niche and they're still absolutely not available to your average high school student who's still wrestling with the idea of what it means to grow up and actually have sexual desire as a woman when nobody's ever mentioned that perhaps this is something you will have. Right. Um, in the extras, we talked about uh, an article you wrote about Dan Mitsu, who's a kind of a softcore pornography actress. And um, one of the things that you you singled out in the article is that there are moments where you know she talks about why she enjoys doggy style, and one of the reasons is that because she doesn't she can't show her face when she's experiencing pleasure to her partner. So there's also kind of this idea of of shame in enjoying a sex act. Would would you say that's a fair assessment? Shame and embarrassment, and that's kind of played upon as a common trope in porn, right? The shame and embarrassment is part of the excitement. Um, and I've heard people, like I've interviewed hundreds of women about this particular issue, and some women have said to me, yeah, that being ashamed and being embarrassed is connected intrinsically with pleasure in my mind. And mm. that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? If that's what you're into, then that's what you're into and fantastic. But if that's the only representation shown to women and the only representation shown to girls as they grow up, and that's what men see as well, and they think that is a natural part of being a woman and a natural part of a woman enjoying a sex act, then that becomes a problem. If only shame embarrassment was this guy's kink, because he'd be getting off he'd be getting off for weeks on the amount that he's created i suspect he might be <laughs> so one one of the big questions here is, is this issue of the power dynamic um and i'm wondering what are the dangers for for women who grow up in a society as japan is where there is such acceptance much more so in the west of things like compensated dating 
things where where you you're seeking out a relationship with you know papakatsu like a sugar daddy or or other forms of compensated companionship you know like a hostess club or or things along those lines how do you see that playing into these issues this is incredibly difficult because you don't want to deny the agency of the women who are involved in these activities you know maybe this is something that they've really always wanted to do maybe it is something that's important or part of their lives but i think you can say that for the vast majority of women who end up involved in compensated dating it's as a result of economic necessity or not having mm. some kind of other way to survive or to make enough money to get by because we know that women disproportionately experience poverty and particularly with the pandemic as well this has become something that has become really really clear that women are often living in poverty or struggling to get by um, I do also though always caution against kind of catastrophizing gender issues in Japan I mean we love to kind of think that, oh, like the countries that we grew up in are so much better than this and Japan is doing very badly and what are we going to do and how am I going to raise my daughters? And we often think like that. But um, there are some elements in Japanese society that are really great for women. Like it's the safest place in the world to give birth by most standards. Um, mm. Some of the best paid maternity and paternity leave in, in the world. Um, what else? Education levels for women are very, very good. But again, this comes down to, all right, you've got the legislation, you've got the medical system, you've got the education system there. But culturally, once you get out of those systems, once you go into the workplace, once you are trying to create a career, once you are trying to get out of poverty, what are you going to experience? So that issue again of the legislation versus culture and what needs to change comes mm. up again there too. I, I love the, the balance to that answer that you just gave. But Ali, just real quick for the edit so we can sell the podcast better. Can you clip out that part where she said Japan is the worst? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just glad that you didn't use as someone with daughters. Because <laughs> there, there, there just aren't robust laws about sexual offenses and cats. And it's going to be hard for me to make my case. Oh, I I learned my lesson from Matt Damon back in the day. I didn't want to do the whole, like, because I have daughters, I'm concerned about sexual assault. Um, and I can prove, actually, that uh, that's not the reason that I'm concerned. Uh, because as we were talking, one of my six-year-olds came up to rang the doorbell to get in the house. And I put my mic on mute so it wouldn't interrupt the recording. <laughs> <laughs> Not, not, not now, six-year-old daughter. I'm trying to make the world better for you. <laughs> <laughs> now bugger off so I can do it in quiet. <laughs> hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 88 of Japan by River Cruise. If you've enjoyed the show, then don't forget we have a new episode every single week. Please make sure to subscribe to make sure you don't miss it when it drops next Friday. Thank you to our guest this week, Dr. Alexandra Hamilton. Alex, it was a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed your Danmitsu article. And we have that link where there's the entire catalog of articles that you've written, including one with previous guest Thomas Bodinet. We'll link to it in the show notes. And thank you again for joining us to talk about this. Thanks so much. We will see you next week.